Thanks, Matt. You all right? Happy humidity. It's back. We can all pray for September when it all goes away, can't we? That's why I cut my hair like this, because of the frizz. It just, it's not fashionable. It's just easy. You would love to have hair like this on days like this. Uh, well, good morning. If you're new, my name is Steve. I'm one of the pastors here at Citadel Square. Welcome. If it's your first time, you picked a great Sunday to join us because we're right in the middle of a book about the future. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. There should be one in the pew rack in front of you, a black one. And turn to the very last book, all the way to the right, and we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 11. Uh, this is the literary center of this book. Uh, and this central about five verses is all we're going to look at today. In this central piece of scripture, we're going to see the greatest news perhaps in all of the book, that we're going to have a major confession by the armies and the angels of heaven. We're going to see uh, the elders sing again, and we're going to see heaven opened, and we're going to see a very particular piece of Old Testament furniture that we haven't seen uh, really since the Old Testament. So, this, uh, this text is a text about worship, and as such, I just want to, uh, it's a pretty straightforward text when we look at worship passages in the scriptures. It's going to harken back to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 that was the worship of heaven around the glory of God and who he is, and then the glory uh, of Jesus Christ, the Lamb, in Revelation chapter 5. And this text is going to harken back to some of those themes, but what I want to do during our time together is pull out three major ideas, and they're going to be three Ps. Uh, this text is going to show you uh, a great uh, kind of three big gospel truths that are helpful for you in your walk with Jesus Christ, wherever you are in your walk uh, with Jesus Christ. And uh, it, it's going to be kind of a challenging text because it's going to press into some certain things that for us are instinctual in the way we live our lives. So let me give you three Ps that will help frame up our time together. The first one we're going to look at is going to have to do with our, our uh, perspective, how we look at life. That the gospel gives us a kind of lens by which we're able to evaluate where we are and how we're meant to live our life. Second, we're going to look at gospel purpose. That the truth about Jesus and his coming and death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and then one event, one day when he will return gives us great purpose for our lives now. And then finally, the third P has to do with a promise uh, that God gives to us that is uh, incredibly encouraging to you and I. And all of that happens in five verses in the worship of heaven. So go ahead, Revelation chapter 11. We're going to start here in verse 15. We've seen in Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11, John participate in the truth of God as he gives a vision of what is going on. And we saw John eat this little scroll. And it was in his mouth, it was sweet, and it made his stomach bitter. And then last week, we looked at the two witnesses. These two individuals who show up in the last days who are perhaps the most powerful witnesses we've ever seen since Moses and Elijah, who will have a certain season of ministry by which they will serve the purposes of the Lord and they will die at the hands of the beast. They'll be ascended to heaven and everyone falls in great fear. And then we close here with the seventh trumpet. We've made our way through seven seals. We're now coming up to the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet you're going to get out of the seventh trumpet is going to call forth seven angels with seven bowls. 
But if you're in Revelation chapter 11, you'll see, just flip forward a couple pages in your Bible and you won't see, I'm in 1 Corinthians for some reason, let me get out of that book, pretend like I'm preaching in the right book. Uh, if you're in Revelation 11 and you see the seventh trumpet, flip forward to Revelation 15. It's not until Revelation 15 where you see the calling forth of the seven angels with the seven bowl judgments. So in between 11 and 15, we have chapters 12, 13, and 14. Are you with me? I went to seminary to learn this kind of stuff, so it's, it's really important. This is, this is the, the nectar of my seminary education coming out. What you're gonna get in 12, 13, and 14 is another biographical sketch, only this time we're gonna look at Satan. We're gonna look at the Antichrist. We're gonna look at the beast. And then we're gonna see uh, the fall of Babylon in chapter uh, 16, 17, 18, until Christ returns in chapter 19. So we have, again, a period of the book of Revelation where we're gonna have both chronology the movement of God's plans forward, and biography, where we look at the major characters and players of the end times. But today, we're going to look at Revelation 11, 15 through 19, and see what God has to say to us in this text. All right? Let's get to it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for your word to us, that we can come as people who are uh, often unaware of spiritual realities. And the Psalms say that uh, as your word unfolds, it gives light. So we pray that as we look into the, uh, the perfect, pure pool of the truth of God's word, that you would give us clarity and confidence, that you would minister to the discouraged who are in this room, who are facing seasons of life that maybe are bringing them despair and difficulty, that we would gain great confidence and great purpose in the lives that we lead and great uh, and that these great promises of your word would encourage us. So, Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would change us, that you would change me as I look into uh, this text, that you would change our church and the men and women who are in this room, that you would change marriages and relationships and uh, our uh, relationships with this world, and that you would cause us in these few minutes to live wise in light of the truth of this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, Revelation 11, verse 15, take a look. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, I want you to see something here. You can read that really quickly, but there's something I wanna pull out that's important for us to see as we see the divine takeover of planet Earth. At this point, you know, uh, we have a tendency to view what is true as what is earthly. And we've been saying this throughout the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation takes spiritual things and physical things and intertwines them, doesn't it? That it brings them back together so that we can see what is happening on Earth is a result of what is happening in heaven. And we're waiting throughout the course of our entire Bible for the kingdom of this world to become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We're waiting for the marriage between heaven and earth, aren't we? That the longing in your heart and in my heart as we look out into our culture or our relationships or our vocations that God has called us to is always tinged with a sense of it shouldn't be like this. Do you feel that? To where you feel 
the holy discontent or divine dissatisfaction as you look out into life in this world. That happens for us, doesn't it? Now, you see that how the kingdom is described. The kingdom is described in the singular. You see that? Now, we see something when we look out over the, the, the course of our entire planet, we see different rulers, different ambassadors, different leaders, different imams, different presidents, different kings and queens that are characterized all throughout this planet as having little bitty kingdoms, little bitty places where they have rule and authority to administer their rule over a certain place on earth. But by this time in Revelation chapter 11. And the way Revelation chapter 11 describes this for us is it describes it only as one singular kingdom, doesn't it? There's only one kingdom and there's only one true king. Now, this is brought together in a very uh, clear spot in one of the temptations of Jesus Christ. Keep your finger in Revelation 11 and turn back to Luke with me just for a second. Turn back to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is the temptation uh, that Luke ca uh, captures for us when Jesus is being prepared to take on the mantle of his public ministry. And if you take a look at Luke 4 verse 5, here's what you see. Luke 4, verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. That as the devil looks out on the various kingdoms of this world, he sees it under one singular authority. Paul calls it in Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air that every single kingdom on this planet is either serving the purposes and the devices and the plans of Satan or it's serving the purposes and designs and plans of Christ. And the temptation here is that Christ would circumnavigate the cross, that he would somehow receive the authority to rule and to reign because he refuses to worship and obey the one true God. That's the temptation. That's the, the weight that lays upon Christ in this moment. Verse 7 says this, if then you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus answers to one person. He answers to his Father in heaven. Now, come back to Revelation 11 here with me. <clears throat> As we come to this point in Revelation chapter 11, there is the, the, uh, the teams are set, Right? You're going to have, as we move into the remainder of this book, those who are marked by the lamb and those who are marked by the beast. You've got home and away. You've got the sheep and the goats. You've got the wheat and the tares. You've got any other illustration that might be helpful for you to understand that at this point, when Christ returns, he's returning to a nation, and I'm sorry, he's returning to a world that is in rebellion against him, that hates his people, that hates God, and that hates his Christ. And what is about to happen is what we just read from Psalm 2, isn't it? That Jesus in his resurrection in the book of Romans is called the divine son. He was declared to be the son of God, 
according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And now God is going to call Christ to rule. We've been building up to this point as Jesus now is presented before the Ancient of Days from Daniel, receives the scroll, it's put into his hand, and God now says, rule. And now here comes Jesus Christ. This text in Revelation 11 is characterized by all past tense verbs. Do you know that? How is a text in the future characterized by past tense verbs? Because it it carries a sense for us as we read it of absolute certainty that there is coming a time when Christ will return and he will rule over every inch of this planet visibly and with total authority and control. Do we see that now? No, we're waiting for that, aren't we? But the kingdom now For Jesus, from Jesus' perspective, is that when he comes, and he says this in Matthew, when he casts out demons, he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come near, and the kingdom is among you. So how is the kingdom among us now? Well, it's among us now, among the people of God who submit to his rule and reign and purposes in our lives. While the world may be characterized by rebellion against God, there is a place where God's people recognize God's true king and God's people bow the knee to his purposes and plans being lived out in their lives. Does that sound familiar? But here we are. We're watching the already and the not yet reality of the kingdom. Now, uh, this shows up. You have a cross-reference in your Bible at this point. You may have a cross-reference as Daniel 2 or Daniel 7. Now, Daniel 7 is where the son is presented before the ancient of days and he's given a kingdom and a dominion that will never pass away and it will be forever. The similar thing shows up in Daniel chapter two. Daniel is a book about the intersection between the one true king and the kings on the earth. So that you have Nebuchadnezzar who's intercepted by the king of heaven and earth and makes him eat grass for seven years. Then you have his son, intersected by the king of heaven, who says, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting, and this night your kingdom is taken from you. And you have the intersection between the king of heaven and Darius, the Mede, who shows up and gets intersected by the king of heaven, so that God says throughout the book of Daniel that he rules over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will. That God has total, complete sovereign authority. You believe that? That's important for us to know, isn't it? Now let me apply this, and I'm gonna give you three big applications. This is incredibly important for the life of the Christian. Because at at some point, we have to acknowledge that all of our dreams and plans and agendas and passions and desires for life on this planet ultimately is held in the hands of the one true and only sovereign king. See, we can read this text and we go, well, I have great ambitions for God. I have great plans that I think God ought to stamp and sign off on for me to bring glory to his name. But you ever have one of those times in life where you have great plans, vision, dreams, and ambitions, and you're building your sandcastles? and God's divine, joyful bulldozer just rolls them over. And you have this sense of God in heaven going, that was a great plan, Steve, wasn't it? 
but that's not my purpose and that's not my plan in this season. I've had that happen. And all of us as Christians are going to face seasons. And we do this all the time. We, we go, God, your kingdom come, your will be done as long as it lines up with my kingdom come and my will be done. You ever been there? Where all of a sudden your career changes and you go, God, this was not my plan to bring about your kingdom. God, this season came to an end that was a really sweet season and now I'm in a season that I don't like all that much and this really doesn't feel like your kingdom come, your will be done. And every Christian is going to wrestle with whether or not in the deep places of our heart we are serving our agenda, our plans, or we're serving God's purposes and God's plans. You been there? Christians, say amen or move your head in a direction that I know you're awake. Yes, you've been there. You know what that's like. See, our daily lives are at the intersection of these two kingdoms. Let me make it kind of like a side point. We pray every month down in the fellowship hall. And the reason we do that as a church is we don't just come together and we ask God for things. We come together to pray as a church because even as a pastor, I can have great plans, dreams, and visions, and our elders can think and pray and dream about things, but ultimately we come before the Lord of heaven and earth. We come before the one who has all authority in every place on this planet, and we're asking not just for God to stamp our plans, but to align our hearts to what God wants to do. This is why prayer is so important, and why, unfortunately, so many of us neglect it. Because we think we know the mind of God in a season, but we don't submit our plans and dreams to him to go, God, change whatever you want. Knock down whatever is not of you. Would you do something in the spirit that is beyond what we could ask or imagine? God, would you align us as a church to your kingdom come, your will be done? Do you pray that? Do you align your heart to the truth of God's purposes and God's plans? And open your hands. See, this is what inoculates you. You know, we as Americans hate failure. Maybe I'll just do this. Maybe you love failure. I, as an American, hate failure. I love seeing my plans get accomplished in my time and in my agenda. And when I face failure, I can immediately shift into bitterness, feeling like God is off his throne. He can't use this season. God didn't know what he was doing. I had great plans. And if God would have only followed up and done what I asked him to do, we could have moved the kingdom forward. Amen. And this acknowledgement of your kingdom come, your will be done, inoculates me against failure. It inoculates me against bitterness against God, that God didn't do what I wanted him to do. When you pray that way, you keep your heart soft to the plans and the purposes of God. So we need this great big perspective on what is going on, right? We need this in our church to say, oh God, would your kingdom come and your will be done in Citadel Square as it is in heaven? Would you do what we cannot do? Would you show us the perspective we ought to have in this season? Okay. 
That's your perspective. That's pretty important, isn't it? Yeah, incidentally, this is an important element of discipleship, is it not? No? That's okay. I'll tell you that this is an important part of discipleship, that as you talk with other people, as you share the truth of the gospel with others, you are not promising them that their career is what Christ is building and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? That we are coming to a one true divine monarch over the planet, and we are bowing the knee in our lives. If anyone would come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That there must come a time for the Christian, and repeated times for the Christian, where we say, God, I am not the king of my life. You are the king of my life. I am not in control over my life. You are in control of my life and that you have taken me from the power of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of God's dear son, and now I serve whatever agenda you want me to serve. I will go wherever you want me to go. If it's uncomfortable, if it costs me extra money to be obedient, if it costs me extra time, I will do it, because I am now a citizen of heaven under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. And I lay my dreams in the hands of Christ. I lay my hopes in the hands of Christ. I lay my ambitions in the hands of Christ. You willing to do that? And to watch Christ crumple them up and go, now you're ready. So that's your perspective. Now let me see, let's look at the next section here. Look at verse 16. And 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Is this good news? It is good news that Jesus reclaims the planet. And he says, now this place is mine. I will not put up with any more rebellion and anger against my people. This kingdom is now my kingdom, and now I rule it. They worship God. They say this, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. That phrase for God talks about his total omnipotence, sovereignty, and control in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned nine different times in this book as a recognition that God is who he says he is and he has total right and authority to do everything that he does in this book. Now, that's his title. Look at what it says here. You, uh, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Now, typically, we've heard this before in the book of Revelation, who was and is and what? Is to come. Now, isn't that interesting that it is not here in this text, is it? No, I think that's super interesting. You know why? Because he's come. He's here. He now begins to rule. <clears throat> now, watch this. This is good. We have, a, you have a look over the remainder of the verse. Verse 17, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Verse 18, The nations raged, but your wrath came. One is a verb form 
of the word for wrath and one is the noun form for the verb for wrath. So here's the great setup. Man on one side, enraged. God on this side, enraged. It's a play on words. How do you think this is gonna go? Just take a wild guess. Who are you betting on? That's what we read from Psalm 2. I was going to take you there, but Timothy preached 10 minutes of my sermon already. I appreciate you, Timothy. You? Wherever you went. Thanks. You can also look at, uh, this is Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are two of the most often quoted psalms in the New Testament. Psalm 2 talks about the divine accolade from God in heaven giving to the God, the Son, his right to rule which is what we read here this morning. Psalm 110 is another one. They're not written of David. They're called purely prophetic psalms. They're written of Jesus Christ and his ruling and reigning king. In Psalm 110, it says that Jesus will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. That when he comes and returns to reign, there will be no ultimate opposition to what he says. The nations raged, but your wrath came. Now watch this. There's three things that happen, and they come out of this next verb, or I'm sorry, this next phrase. The time. You see that? See the time? The time is not, uh, there's two words for time in your Bible. One has to do with chronological time. 1.15, 1.30, 1.45, 2 p.m., right? That time moves forward. The other is the word kairos, and it has to do with a season of time. It's used when the demons talk to Jesus uh, when they hold the garrison demoniac and they say, have you come to torture us, to torment us before the time? When Jesus gives the parable of the church age, of the wheat and the tares, he says there's coming a point where you're gonna let them grow together and then we will harvest them at harvest time. And here, there's a season when Jesus Christ returns and said, now I am going to rule and I am going to take over. Three major things are going to happen. The time for the dead to be judged. Hebrews says that uh, it's appointed to man to die and then to face judgment. I've said this before in our church, but Paul says that there's coming a day when God will judge the secrets of men in Christ Jesus. Jesus says that you will give an account for every word that you have spoken. By the end of the book of Revelation, it will talk about the deeds of men being written in the books and men are given according to what that they have done. That the things that you do and think and say during your short 70 to 90 year span on this planet have eternal and everlasting consequences. And when Jesus returns, he will weigh those things. Peter says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It will be seen. There will be nothing hidden from God. God does not forget God sees every season, every attitude, every sense of bitterness, every piece of thankfulness that erupts out of your heart because of what God has done. He sees every action that you take. He sees every word that you have spoken. Hebrews says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There will be a judgment, and that judgment 
will be at a particular time. There's a second thing that happens at that time. Look at the remainder of the verse. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great. Not only will there be a judgment, but there also will be a reward. Hebrews chapter six, that God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. That God takes note of our faithfulness in the smallest of places, in the places that go mostly unnoticed, that you can serve your king. Well, Steve, I don't have a great position. I don't have a lot of authority. I I don't have a lot of visibility in the things that I am being told to do. It feels like my service for Christ in these little unknown areas that nobody sees. Young moms, can I get an amen? It seems like I'm, I'm not making any progress. And John says the time for the reward for the prophets, the leaders of God's people, those who speak the word of God, the saints, the people of God, both Old and New Testament, those who fear your name with a reverence of doing what God has called them to do in the place and time God has called them to, whether small or great, will be rewarded. Remember what Jesus says about the spiritual practices of the Christian in Matthew 6? He says that uh, when you give and when you pray and when you fast, you go into your secret room That when you fast, you don't come out looking all haggard and sad about how hard you're fasting. That when you pray, you don't give loud oratory moments during prayer, that your prayers are secret and silent and in secret places, and your father who sees in secret will what? He'll reward you. That it's dangerous to serve for the sake of visibility because then you have your reward in full. But imagine a church that was so devoted to their king and to his purposes and to the seasons of life that they are in that we were characterized by simple, obedient, faithful service in small ways. See, uh, you ever watch, there's a a show on, uh, on TV called Undercover Boss. Steve, you with me? You love that show. Steve loves that show. Undercover Boss has the CEO of the company of, you know, Subway or, I don't know, and other places that are companies that make money. And they send the boss to work with the people who, you know, just punch in. And over the course of the show, inevitably, you find the people who are working because of they need to or working because they love the company or they love the product or whatever, and they're evaluated. And there's this tension set up between the CEO who owns the whole thing and the people who don't take their job that seriously and kind of blow off their responsibilities. And it's, it's set up. It's a great pitch because by the end, they are introduced to the CEO of the company. And re- they realize in this blinding flash that they have been talking to the one who owns the whole thing. And for us as Christians, that's how we are to operate. We know one day we're going to stand before Jesus Christ with eyes like the flame of fire, whose clothes are like lightning, his feet like burnished bronze, and he will examine us. 
And on that day, I want to present God with works and deeds of faithfulness in light of the fact that I knew he was returning. I knew he would come back. You know what this inoculates you against? If you really believe that the things that you do during your time on earth have everlasting and eternal consequences, it saves you and inoculates you from the lie that where you are right now doesn't matter, that I will only find purpose then. If you talk to my wife about her season of singleness, she came to a startling realization that she said, my life does not begin then. My life is now. That my life is here to be lived for the glory of Jesus Christ and his purposes right now. I don't need to get there. I can serve him now. So understanding that what we do and the actions we take have divine purpose and accountability saves us from this perspective of just sort of a spiritual apathy. Where I go, well, I'm sure other people are serving God, but it doesn't really matter if I do right now. There aren't any real consequences. I can kind of come and engage and disengage whenever I want. And my life can kind of just be lived arbitrarily. And Satan would love to leave you right there, pursuing your own passions, your own desires, and making you believe that what you do doesn't matter that much. But if you live in light of divine accountability, then you can step into areas of service where things are not seen because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and your love for him and who he is and what he has done. And you can live on purpose. You don't have to be aimless anymore. You can align your life with what God is doing on this planet. Finally, there's a time coming for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Okay, so you got a divine perspective. I got to see like God sees. I got to know that God has all authority in heaven and on earth. And that when I pray, I've got to say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done in this season of life, in this vocation, in my time of schooling, whatever God you want to do, wherever you want to send me, I will go. And then two, I can live on purpose in those seasons. You with me? That I recognize that what I do matters. What I do can have an impact for God's purposes in somebody else's life. That I can really walk with God in the simple areas of life, of my parenting and my conversations with my spouse or the work that I'm doing and trust that it's not meaningless. Okay, number three. There's one more thing that I think is a great promise in this text that you'd read it and you go, I don't know why this is here. But we're gonna see one more place in heaven, one more piece of furniture that we haven't mentioned really in the whole book. Look at verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. Uh, Moses when he's given the instructions for all of the implements uh, in the tabernacle, the, the bread of the presence, the lampstand, the incense altar, the altar of sacrifice, the holy place, the most holy place, the ark, all of those things are given by divine pattern, it says, that you will make things according to the pattern that you received on the mountain, which means the visible things during Moses' day were a copy of the true heavenly things. 
Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. All ownership. You see three? God's temple, his covenant, his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. Now, why in the world is the ark here? Why in the world do we see the ark in heaven? Why in the world is heaven open so that John can see the ark? Well, the ark was built by Moses during his day. And the ark contained three things. It contained uh, God's law, the tablets of stone written by the finger of God. It was given to the people of God, the truth of God. That they would know these are God's righteous standards. Remember what John had in Revelation 10? He had the scroll and it was sweet that he knew the truth of God, but bitter in his stomach that he knew what was coming. Number two in the ark was the staff of Aaron. And the staff of Aaron is a staff that budded and produced almonds. It was, a, it was a statement that God gave during a rebellion that happened during the book of Numbers when God says, tell all these leaders to put their staffs out and the one that sprouts will be the one who is my high priest. It was God's divine affirmation that there's only one guy who can come into my presence and produce life. There's only one guy who has authority to access the most holy place. And number three in the ark was the jar of manna, which reminds the nation of Israel, reminds the people of God that God has provision in the most barren of places. Three very big, important ideas. But when heaven is opened and we read that the ark of the covenant was seen, The ark existed right in the middle of God's people. It was the place around which everything in Israelite's life was oriented. And the ark was a testimony that God was dwelling with his people, that God was there in their midst, that during the days of Samuel, they bring the ark out to say that God is with us. It goes bad for them, but... This was the idea that God has drawn near and that we have God with us in our midst. And it's as if God opens the temple of heaven and he draws you and I into the most holy place, the place of greatest intimacy and presence with God. So that in Psalm 2, when the psalm ends, it says, kiss the son lest you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And here again is God throwing open heaven. And there's two realities here. One is that we have the promises of God that God is with us. That we're invited into the holy place through the veil that has been torn And we now have free access to God and the God who will be faithful to his promises to the end of our days and to the end of your Bible. But on the other hand, there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. But there's one place of safety, and out of that very place of safety will come judgment upon all of the enemies of God.
So there's three big ideas in this worship section. One is that you and I are called to have the perspective that we live and serve the purposes of God who is owed all glory, all power, and all majesty in every stage of life, every season of life, everything that we are called to, that we are praying as God's people, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, reorient us. And we all need reorienting from time to time, don't we? We all need times where we go, oh, I'm pursuing my will, my agenda, my purposes, my design. God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And two, we need purpose. You need to live for something greater than your own personal desires. I need to live for something greater than my own personal desires and agendas and plans. And I need to be able to serve my king in the smallest of ways and the most unnoticed of places. Recognizing that God has called me to divine accountability with my life. It's one of the great untaught areas of Christian eschatology that there will be rewards for those who are faithful. And three, we have the great promise. You know how Jesus ends his command during his ministry? All authority in heaven on earth is given to me, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. For behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. It is the church, when we align our hearts and our lives with the perspective that God wants us to have, to make our lives as Christians be about the purposes that God has for us in this place during this season, we can be assured of the greatest news of the book of Revelation. You know what the greatest news of the book of Revelation is? Let's close here. Turn forward. We'll get to this in like 2035. Turn forward to Revelation 21. This is the remaking of the new heaven and the new earth, but the joy of the remade heaven and earth is here in these verses. I saw Revelation 21. Y'all there? So I'm still flipping. Almost done flipping. Okay, we're done. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, here's the greatest hope of the Christian. The greatest hope of your heart and my heart is this verse. Side point before we get there. Paul, uh, at the end of the book of Galatians, says, far be it from me to boast in anything but the cross of Christ." through which I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. That Jesus Christ on the cross broke our relationship with the world. He took it over his knee and snapped it in half so that the cross becomes our greatest boast because the cross assures us of what Jesus says at the end of his ministry in the book of John. He says, Mary, don't cling to me for I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. And the hope of the book of Revelation is right here. It's verse three. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they 
will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Isn't that your hope? That one day you will see him eye to eye and that your deeds of faithfulness, your clinging to the perspective that God wants you to have during this season of life, the obedience that it doesn't seem like is producing any fruit will one day be vindicated in the presence of God who is guaranteed to bring you to himself and to be with you forever. Amen? That's how the book of Revelation ends. Not with you getting everything you want in heaven, but with you getting God. That that divine relationship ultimately will extend into eternity where you and God see each other eye to eye. And that he is your God. And he, God is your God. And you are his people. Okay? Let's pray. Father. Thanks for these truths of worship in heaven that reorient our perspective, that give us divine purpose and guard us and inoculate us against apathy and an aimless kind of life together. Father, what great truths is that we can call you our God and we can be your people. That you love us, you saved us, you forgave our sins, you brought us into right relationship with yourself. Would we live in light of the promise that you have reestablished our relationship with one another? That in Jesus, we have the audacity and the courage to boldly enter the holy place. That we can pray and you hear us, that you can reorient our lives, that you can give us joy and service, that you can give us a perspective in the seasons of our life that are bewildering to us because most of all, we love the fact that you are with us. God, would that reality cause our hearts to erupt with joy? And it's in Jesus' name we pray this, amen.